Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a man I've long known for quite a while and admired for every minute of it. Kristen Maidsburg, originally from Denmark, a co-founder of Red has worked with people as a consultant in the private sector, as an innovator. Subsequent to that, became a professor at the New School of Social Research. And he's got a new book out. And the new book is going to make my top 10 list in this time I have on this planet, for sure. The name of the book is quite simple. The name of the book is Look. And I'll let him tell you why and what it's about. But I want to first welcome you, Christian. You've come to INET. You've made videos. You've influenced me behind the scene and many of my colleagues, Chris Canavan, who spent some time as our board chair. And I imagine that we're just at the starting gate because there are thousands of people now in our Young Scholars Initiative. And boy, are they going to like this book. I'm playing with you today with all kinds of grins inside because of my earlier experience with the book, The Peregrine. And uh, I'll, maybe we'll talk about that towards the end. But it illuminates now things that have been, how do I say? That book has been echoing in my mind throughout my entire adult life. So, at any rate, welcome, Christian. And I guess we start off with what inspired this project? Where did, where did it come from? I, I mean, I understand your experience, but shifting gears and writing this book, where's, where's that inspiration? I mean, thank you for the introduction, Rob. That's too kind. And it's great to be back. I think we've done a couple of these by now, and it's enjoy very enjoyable. Um, I, I had students for eight years, I think, in a row, where I did the same class uh, once a year at the new school in Manhattan. And it was students from all over, the, all over the school. So we have the philosophy students and sociology students, some of the business students, but also jazz, opera, you know, musicians and performing artists. And all of them wanted to learn how to look. They wanted to learn how to pay attention. And um, that class became sort of an iconic thing. It became something that people talked about and wanted to be part of and had difficulty getting into because there was only so many we could take in. Um, and uh, after that class ran, so many of these students came back and said, could you, shouldn't you take this? class and make it into a simple, comprehensive sort of picture in a book or in a film or something. And I, just because I write, I wrote a book um, about it. And so it's my, it's basically the reaction of the students and seeing them find help, um, finding the tools that I try to teach uh, helpful that made me want to write it. And then, of course, the examples in the book, all the stories I have in the book, come from the people and the artworks and the literature and the music that, and the philosophy that inspired me um, along the way. Because I'm, in a way, an autodidact observer, but professional observer nonetheless. So that was really the reason, was to see the eyes of my students once they sort of started to get it. I thought I'd bring that to many, many more people. Well, I think you're on the, how do I say, you're on the takeoff ramp, and uh, maybe we're maybe we're going to the sun. <laughs> the uh, 
Well, I'm, I'm interested in the, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the process of looking. You have some basic ingredients that you put together about what's necessary to do that in a way that illuminates things for you and for you to better understand the context in which you live and operate. Right. So the sky has just opened where I am right now. So if there's a rumble in the background, it's nature. Um, but, but the birds um, are flying again. I know, yeah. They're scared right now. <laughs> but the, um, uh, what are the tools? Well, I think first you need to learn to see yourself seeing. So most of the time, uh, we just drone through life which there's nothing wrong with. Actually, it's quite magical if you think about how we do that. Um, and see that you're seeing the world in a particular way. Uh, so seeing yourself seeing is the first part. And uh, the examples I use for doing that are uh, the early uh, 20th century Gestalt psychologists from Germany who uh, said we don't see anything, any particular atomic piece of information. Any piece of information that we see, color, shape, distance, um, is always on the background of something else. So there's only a foreground because there is a background and vice versa. And so everything is seen as what they call gestalts. So gestalt is a whole. Um, and we humans see things as holes. So if you go into a room, you don't just see that's a blue chair, that's a table, and so on. You see room with tables and chairs and all the activities that's involved in that. So we humans, when we see, we see things in holes, not in parts. And what even counts as a part is defined by the whole. Whatever, whatever is seen as relevant is because it's part of a whole that makes sense of us. So it makes sense to you. So if you go down, I, you know, I live on 13th Street in Manhattan. If you go down 13th Street, you there's a school, and we immediately know what a school is. And we know that it has students and blackboards and projectors and chairs and teachers and so on, homework. And that whole world is meaningful to us, and we understand that. And we don't need to see every single... Uh, atomistic uh, piece of it, information to do that. We see the whole thing, bam, as one. So seeing, your whole, seeing yourself seeing is to see how you see holes and why you see those holes. And, you know, for instance, a camera or a robot can't do that because they don't see holes like that. Um, so seeing yourself seeing is the first step. And then, of course, the second step is seeing others see. So let me you, let me just you, ask you a question. Okay. Seeing yeah. yourself seeing is something that I when I read about whether in psychology or classics is hard to do because sometimes because of pain of previous episode you don't want to see what you see or sometimes you want to see a subset of what you see. So the the human observer has to be very disciplined not to be a refractory influence on what it is that's being observed, is my understanding. I agree. I, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I have a hard time commenting on the world of pain. But I would imagine it has the same structure as the rest of it, which is you enter the world with judgment of some kind or with preconceived notions of some kind. And you see, this is a man, this is a woman even though it might be in between. Uh, this, is a, this is a church, this is a house, and so on. So we have these preconceived notions and unfortunately often judgments about what the world looks like that then becomes the reality we see. And seeing through that, seeing what's really there, um, is very difficult. And I would imagine if you have a traumatic background, your your attention would snap into place in terms of what you want to see in a, in a way that um, would protect you from what's really there. I, I, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but um, for the rest of us, it, 
our attention works um, by almost almost like a panoptic attention that pays attention to everything and nothing. It's not focused attention, but it knows what's there. Uh, yet seeing what actually is there, penetrating through that judgment or those preconceived notions, is what observation is. It's the kind of observation I'm interested in is to wait with the judgment, to wait with opinion about things. So when my students would come in to the class in the beginning, we had to excavate all those opinions. So they would, the students would have a lot of opinions about the world, and they were almost taught to have opinions, um, often in, in the case of the new school, very political opinions. And I'm sure they were all reasonable, and I'm sure they all had reasons to hold those opinions, but that just wasn't relevant in a class that was about observation. With observation, you arrest those opinions, and you don't see the world as, through a neoliberal or a you know, socialist or whatever ideological framework you have. You don't see the world through that. You see it first before you start applying those frameworks. And that is very, very difficult for humans. But it's just like exercise. It's something you can, we can do. It's something we can learn. And it's something that we can practice as a sort of a daily practice to see what's, what's truly there. Um, and it sounds mysterious. It's not mysterious at all. We all do it all the time. We could just all be better at it as well. And it would help us in so many ways if we, if we were. And then I guess, and we'll get on to this, because this is just at the first part of observation. Once you observe something, you're probably aware of what a variety of audiences will think of what you see or what you say. And that exactly. can also have a refractory influence. Exactly. And, it, and it's, a, it's a basically an ontological condition of humans is that we are with others. We're not withdrawn subjects looking at objects, uh, except, I mean, scientists can look at, you know, look at bacteria or planets or something, and they can have a very, they can be subjects looking at objects. And we can do that, and we should um, uh, once in a while. But, but our fundamental ontological position is that we are with, in the midst of things with others, even if we're alone on, a, on, a, on an island, uh, uh, we would still fundamentally experience the world as with others, because they, even though they weren't there. So, so you're right that we, we see through the uh, generalized experience that we have from the place we live, and that often becomes a filter between us and what's really there. So even Robinson Crusoe, whether it was Friday or knowing he might go home someday, is influenced by the, what I'll call the human, or the human context. Of His experience, yeah. yeah. Robinson Crusoe's experience of the world was full of people, even though there weren't any. Yes. Uh, actually, the yeah. absence of them made it even more prescient that yes. that he yeah. was certainly. Yeah. So ontologically, we are in the midst of things and amongst yeah. others. Well, I I took you a little bit off course, but after the you said there there are three parts. After the first part, what are the second and third parts of cultivating? the ability to observe? Um, well, the, the second thing I think is seeing others see. So if you, if you understand how you see and that you see things in holes and that those holes have a structure and that you can see through them, then you can, then you can start observing how other people see. And um, if I may go back to the 13th Street example. So the first level of observation or the first level of attention is just walking down the street without any necessary any language processing any thought any intellectual process you just walk down the street you know the whole of the street and you know how to maneuver in it you know that's a fire truck that's a electric bike that's a that's a you know two uh children going to school um, if, if you walk down the street you have that and that's panoptic attention then there's a second type of attention, which is the one everybody wants, and that is focused attention. So that is a type of attention that's more like a spotlight. It's not a floodlight. It's a spotlight on something where everything else disappears. 
And we can do that. That's what science heals. That's what we ask our children when we say, pay attention. It means all these other things has to go away. You have to, you know, put your spotlight on something. And I think that's a small part of what attention is. And helpful, but not, not um, the most important. So let's say that's second or first order above panoptic attention. So panoptic attention, uh, focused attention. And then I think there's a, there's a second order, which is the one I, the whole book is about, and the one I've practiced my whole life. We, we, I call hyper-reflection. And, and hyper-reflection is seeing the patterns of how people move and why they're moving in the way they're moving. So seeing how they see, based on what do they see what they see, based on which assumptions do they move through the street like that, or move through life, or understand society, or teach, or whatever people do, based on what are they doing that? So it's sort of a meta skill of observation that you that that is the theme of the book and, and so on. And I think learning to do hyper-reflection, this is not a word I came up with, it's Maurice Maliponti, the French uh, phenomenology sort of genius philosopher uh, of the 20th century. Hyper-reflection is the ability to see other people see. Um, and we can all do that. We do it all the time. But being organized, systematic, disciplined about it is something you can use. You know, if you only stayed in that situation, you would probably not be in a good place. But you can turn it on and off and you can see what other people see in a walking down the street, but also, you know, thinking about how economists see the world and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and that skill of hyper-reflection to me is the highest order of observation. I'm here in Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth in my mind okay. right now. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. And you're here to clarify it. <laughs> well, I'll try. The, uh, I think this is, this is very important because particularly in a time of change, you're describing observing, it requires a certain discipline, but it also requires a certain courage. And it's also just, it requires to be uh, effective, a certain empathetic nature that when what people believe is disrupted, like say, climate unsustainability, it is disorienting. It, it, it might, depending on your perspective, inject a lot of fear into your system, make you more self-protective, change your ability to be an observer, and being constructive about the whole process when you know other people are unsettled. Is a different, it's a different but very challenging dimension. But what I love about what you're doing is you're, you're, if you will, disaggregating to the many things that come into that whole so that you can see, if you will, how to help. Yes. I think, I mean, change is, of course, the most interesting state of a foreign observer. Seeing how people make sense of change. Like one thing is the change itself. That would be panoptic attention. Another thing would be focusing on variables. That would be focused attention. But focusing on how people experience the change, how people try to make sense of that change, is hyper-reflection. And being, seeing change has, there are different tools, and I lay out a couple of them in the book. But but um, seeing formations of ideas that are somehow stitched together for people to make sense of the world is, um, I mean, even humorous. It's, it's sort of how are they, through which lens are people trying to uh, get a grip on, on the world and get, a, get in the right position to understand it. So an order above what they, what they are you know, in terms of just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I think the pandemic was a good example of it because we were all so confused and there was so much change and, you know, information came by, you know, changed every day. 
um, seeing how people try to make sense of that uh, was interesting. So what what I do usually is is in those situations is seeing which words are people combining in order to create a lens through which they can understand what's going on. Uh, and or words or notions, you could say. And how are those combined? And it's, it's, it's not... And the fundamental idea is that there's nothing stable about it. There's nothing um, eternal about it. It's just notions people have, you know, put together in order to understand what's going on. So... In the, in the case of the pandemic, there were lots of, lots of symbols that were put together. So, of course, uh, there were vaccine, not vaccine, mask, not mask, uh, government, not government, medical uh, science, not medical science. And then a lot, a lot of social aspects. Who, who was this hitting the hardest and so on? And those, were put, those notions were put together the same notions were put together by different groups to understand the world in vastly different ways. So there was nothing intrinsically uh, truthful about any of those notions. It's the way they were put together that gave an ideology that people could then look at the world to try to understand it and figure out what they should do and, and what they should think about it. So for me, it is the observation of how those notions are put together how people do that, that's interesting. And that's, for me, hyper-reflection. That's a way to figure out what on earth is going on and why are people reacting and behaving the way they're behaving. Um, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing, that, that humans can do that. Well, it's uh, clearly from, I'm, how do I say, I'm a student of your recent writing, but my sense is that what you're doing is creating a depth of awareness that allows you to navigate these treacherous waters more constructively, more artfully. And it, how would I say, it's needed right now. And uh, I can see the disorientation, many of the groups uh, rethinking economics, the post-crash society, INET's Young Scholars Initiative, they began by saying, what is this stuff? It doesn't explain what's happening in my world. But then to move from that to who are the leaders of tomorrow and how do they navigate? I think you're, you're teaching at that next level, which is very, uh, very encouraging. I remember, I remember doing Econ 1 a long time ago. And I remember the force that the teacher had to, the, the way the teacher had to enforce the assumptions of economics on us. They were so bonkers. You know, if you came in, if you just came in and heard it the first time, you thought, who would think like this? It's, it's, that, that's not, the, those are obviously not the case. Which is why the, the teacher had to be very, very um, forceful and strong-handed with us to force us not to observe, right? To force us to <laughs> not do what I'm talking about here. Yes. Um, and it's the same, you know, if you were a scientist and the hypotheses were already defined and all you could do was to test hypotheses uh, against data sets and not define new hypotheses or adjust hypotheses based on something, you know? And what is that something? Well, it's, it's observation. Like great, uh, you know, if you take Ekelhoff's um, uh, lemon, lemon paper, for instance, the, the markets of lemons, he'd done some observation before that. And, he, you know, he's hailed, as this, he's hailed as this very organized, structured scientist, but there's, there is some serious observation happening before that. And, you know, James Peirce called that abductive reasoning, but it, but it, is, it is what happens before the hypothesis. And uh, that, boy, you're hit, that, oh, go ahead. You're hitting the nail on the head. The Akerlof family, I just came back from Paris, and they have a group called Economic Research in Identity, Norms, and Narratives. And they 
it, it, it spun out of a book that Rachel Crampton and George Akerlof wrote called Identity Economics. But Robbie Akerlof, a young, really extraordinary and now tenured professor at Warwick University in England, essentially has said, what if those things called preferences are interactive? What if when you go to college, your fear about your credentials affects what you choose to learn, how you express yourself, who you hang out with, etc. All of these things become a feedback loop which upends standard normative welfare economics, which acts as though the market just serves the desires of the people, as opposed to the desires being a reaction to the outcome of the market. And, uh, and, but, but watching them, I've known them for years. And I've watched Robbie grow up through undergraduate, graduate, everything. Their capacity, and as you know, George's wife is the Treasury Secretary of the United States, former Fed Chairman, but their capacity to reflect might be the best. If I came to the table and I said, I got to find one, or in this case, three examples, all in the same family, of who best, how do I say, best examples of what you're trying to teach. They'd certainly be at the front of the, of the line I would nominate. Right. And uh, so your market for lemons uh, insight goes back to the starting gate where he broke away from the core tradition. And by the way, he once said to a group of our leaders that he did not want to be accused of creating assisted professional suicides. So he was very concerned about how his ideas as a noble area affected graduate students who might not be treated the same way as he was if that's what they worked on. So real deep consciousness there. Yeah, and, and, and worrisome that someone with a Nobel Prize would have to uh, hide the true technique and the true uncertainty that he's seeing from his students in order to have them have jobs like that. You know, you, you couldn't make that shit up. I think George went one step further, which is he agreed with them and empathized with their curiosity, but he warned them about what the pathway to career success and left it to them to decide whether to, what you might call, wait till you get tenor before you demonstrate your courage or if you start right at, at the get-go while you're writing your dissertation. Because a lot of people think being an innovator should make them desirable because they're going beyond where we've been as a profession. Right. Yes. Yes, I agree. But, but it just says something about scientific insight, right? That, that true scientific insight doesn't come through running the models based on the assumptions of others. It comes through um, careful, organized attention to a social phenomenon. Uh, and, and then you can do all your athletics, all your mathematical athletics afterwards, but if you like, but, but it has to start with observation. And that's also the case for making things. So if you make cars or TV sets or, you know, hotel services or hospitals, using observational skills to identify how people think about this and how people operate, how people that pay attention to something um, can make you see what you can make for them. Um, so it can be used for innovation, for, for, for innovation in services or products or um, ideas in some way or, or another. And I think we do way, way, way too little of it. I, I think the news media does too little observation of what news means in people's lives. I think university administrations spend way too little time observing 
what's it like to be a student uh, trying to f- find your footing? Uh, I think hospital administrators and regulators spend way, way too little time figuring out what's it like to be a nurse or what's it like to live in a family where mother has diabetes. Um, you know, if, if you don't have that attention to the actual lived life of people in an organized, structured way in order to formulate hypotheses that you can then test, um, then you end up leading an abstract life and you lead an, a very abstract relationship to what you're doing. And for me, the antidote to that abstraction and that sort of distance and feeling languishing and stuck that I think a lot of, a lot of us do is observation, this direct observation of the phenomenon at hand uh, as an inspiration and as a critique of your own assumptions and whatever field you're in, the field's assumption about what's important and not important, what's meaningful and not meaningful. Uh, So these techniques are, I think, applicable to a lot of things. I think they're also healthy. I think they're good for you. One of the things that I enjoyed in the early part of the book, just the reaction that I had, was you were saying people will get together and talk about innovation. But if you don't observe what's really out there, you don't know what the innovation is or how your notion will affect the world, etc. And to be a successful innovator is enhanced tremendously by being a deep observer. Exactly. And it feels, it feels luxurious to go out and spend a lot of time trying to figure out how people experience something, how people see something. But it's actually extraordinarily effective. So i give you an example. Um, so I work with a big automaker that make big trucks uh, and cars and so on for a long time. And maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't so obvious that electric vehicles would be a big deal. It was still a fringe elite phenomenon on the coasts in America. So if you owned a Tesla, you were probably fairly wealthy, um, probably very concerned about climate change. Um, and it was sold on climate. So, so then we were asked by this automaker, like, if we're going to send to change our entire fleet of cars, our entire innovation pipeline towards electric. It's very expensive, and if we get it wrong, lights are out. Like we, it's the end. So they said, what's the relationship for, with electric vehicles for people in the Midwest or in the South or you know, in the, you know, other places where, where climate change is um, an abstract thing? So climate change is a graph published by the UN, and uh, you can then under- try to understand it, but it's a very abstract idea. Um, it's long, it's complicated, it's scientific, it has all kinds of problems with it in order to understand it. But then we spent, then instead of, instead of just judging the Midwest and the South and saying they don't understand climate change, that they, they don't care, they're against it, we spent some time with them and uh, a lot actually in order to understand what's the truck, what's a pickup truck to them and what's their relationship to nature because climate change is part of nature. It's just a very abstracted version of it. And it turned out that when you spend time with these people that should not be interested in electric vehicles at all, should be against it, should be loving burning gasoline uh, in, in, in the opinion of people on the, on the coasts, it turned out that no, actually, they love nature even more than, than we do. They, they just call it the outdoors. They don't call it climate, climate change. And their relationship to it is very concrete. It's fixing a river or engaging with the sheep population or something like that. And it, it's much, it's, it's as deep and as rooted in nature as anyone else. And we agree, we all agree that it's important. And electric vehicles is, if it's not, if it's, if it's a symbol of doing things in nature that's helpful and practical and that doesn't uh, create an air you don't want to 
breathe and doesn't have all these other effects, then actually we can all agree that it's a good idea. Uh, so that meant that we could electrify the entire fleet because we all agreed we just had different words for it and different notions for it. So the innovators at this company spent time out and had a complete epiphany that was, we thought that electric engines was a lightning rod, political lightning rod. And it turns out when you look at it, the way they think about it and the way they observe the world, it didn't have to be. It, uh, it could be something we all agreed on. And now it is, you know. And it meant that you can then make quite large bets on the future if you, if you do this hyper-reflection type observation of how do these people see the world? How do they look at the world? And are we misunderstanding each other in some way or another? And in that case, we were on misunderstanding each other and we could do something. So that's maybe an example of more practical kind of world example where the techniques are helpful. I've, I've experienced, I grew up in Detroit and uh, still have a lot of friends in Michigan. And uh, there's a group called Homecoming Detroit, which gets together every year about how we can help and how they can evolve. And I'm seeing them moving forward in the electronic vehicle world, albeit some would say belatedly. But one of the most interesting experiences I've had was I was in West Virginia about a year ago and I gave a talk and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, we're not against climate change, but you're from Detroit. You should understand that when globalization, automation and machine learning came in, you guys got disrupted and nobody gave you adjustment assistance. So we're, we're afraid. We think the end game of climate transformation and ending the use of coal is important, but we're not ready. And you probably, and the guy says to me, and you probably have a lot of friends who have suburban homes that commute 55 minutes to work. If we are really energy conscious, the price of those homes is going to go down because they're not going to be connected to the workplace anymore. This was before the pandemic, by the way. So the idea of remote work hadn't uh, moved to center stage. But it was fascinating for me. This, it was a learning experience to go in, talk about issues related to transformation and energy, and experience the enthusiasm that you underscored, but a different chapter of where the hesitation or resistance might emanate from. Yeah. And that's where we can start solving problems together, when we start doing that. It's when we, we try to understand people that we should dislike, uh, based on our, <laughs> our ideology. You know, we, in, in, in getting, getting, looking through our own ideology and the, the window or filter we have in front of us that is judging the world in, a, in one way or the other. And if we, if we for a little while, try to put that aside and try to observe. And I think it's quite important that it's not just accepting what everybody's saying. It's not agreeing with anything. It's just looking and listening. And if we do that and record what we see and then make up our mind, we can end up having the kind of experiences you have, which is, in fact, maybe we can work together on these things. I just need to get get in your head or I need to get in, in your body in order to see how do you orient yourself towards the world. And th th but that means you have to go to Virginia and spend some time, which is of course inconvenient if you live in Manhattan. And then you have to, t you know, and so on. But but it's the way to do it is to is to go observe whoever you're working for or whoever you're serving whether you're a politician that serves a constituency or a hospital administrator that serves up, you know, patients and nurses and doctors, or if you're an automaker and you serve the people that are using, using the, the cars and, and, and vehicles that, that are on the road, like what does that mean to them? And if you do that, you can innovate and you can create bridges and you can solve a lot of problems. 
So it sounds banal, but it's really hard to do. It's really difficult to do. Yeah. Oh, and you go to places that collect data like Annenberg or um, World Economic Forum or Richard Edelman, who does work for them. You see so much hostility towards expertise and governance now. And what I think is that, like I heard in West Virginia, people act like you're going to roll me and you don't care how I feel. You don't represent me. Acknowledging their costs is part of alleviating the fear and inspiring their participation in transformation. But we have to represent them too. Not do it to them, we have to do it with them. And I, and I really think that uh, some of the tensions that we see right now are from what you might call the wrong reaction to the challenge. Because the resistance, an empathetic person would say, I'm not surprised you're resistant. It could be very painful. And you, uh, how would I say, the, the question that's in my, my heart right now is you've identified this method of observation. But as the emotional environment becomes more violent or volatile or what have you, how do you stay on course? How do you maintain your discipline? How do you, how would I say, keep looking, but keep those emotional cross currents from overwhelming you? Right. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to stop judgment. It's so natural to judge. And the, emotion, the emotions you talk about are to take a, set, a worldview or an ideology and impose it on the world that you see. Uh, and the world then snaps into place and makes sense to you. But, and, and, and the more dramatic things are and the higher the, uh, the, 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 more, the stronger the emotion, the harder it gets, of course. But isn't that what good science is when you have the ability to not do that? Um, isn't it what good governance is? Like real good governance or real good politics is to, even under the, in the face of deep-seated emotion, you can still, which you should keep, by the way. There's nothing wrong with having those emotions. But you should also have a part of you that just observes to try to understand what's going on. Otherwise, you end up doing, lashing out, doing things that are, that are unhelpful. Um, and if you know, if you went to the Midwest, uh, to the people we met with, um, you know, when we studied trucks and uh, the pickup truck as a as a social phenomenon, and you just told them, but two percent temperature raise, they would say, what? What are you talking about? We don't care, you know. It's, it, and it's because, but if you talk about nature, they would care. So it's just figuring out ways that we experience the same notions, but put together in different ways. And without that, I don't think you're a very good politician. I don't think you're a very good regulator, or you're certainly not a very good scientist. If you can't stay in that place of observation uh, for some of your time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talked to me about this discipline in your book, I noticed that you didn't start with J.A. Baker and the Peregrine. That was the climax. That was the conclusion. That was the thing I think when I walked out the door you wanted to plant most powerfully in my mind. And I remember years ago I was through a coincidence involved in sailing in Alaska, which led to an introduction to Werner Herzog. And then he had a formative group for his master class on making a film. And this was at a time when I was working with Alex Gibney and uh, a handful of other people on documentary film, whether music or politics. And, uh, listening 
to Werner Herzog talking about how to create that awareness, that listening, how when one of his mentors was passing away, he walked a hundred miles to get his head straight amidst all the pain and emotion that he had. But he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And if you take his master class, there's a whole segment about the Peregrine as perhaps the best example of observation that we've ever seen someone render. And the book is now legendary. And in 1967, it was unrecognized. Tell me how you discovered the Peregrine and tell me, you have something like nine lessons in the last part of the book. Yes. Let's help, let's help our young scholars uh, get on track with the Peregrine. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, before you even think of reading my book, you should read that one. Um, it, it is my favorite book in the world. It was given to me by one of my associates, one of the people I worked with in my previous company. And he just gave it to me one day and said, this is your book. Um, and I didn't know of it. It's, it's a quite a, I mean, it's a legendary book, but it's also not that well known. Um, it's a small, what is it, 100 pages, something like that. And it describes, it describes an observer, a man, walking around in Essex in, in the east side of London, looking for peregrines. And the peregrine is, of course, a falcon. It's a, it's a, a, a predatory bird. And, if, and of course, he's not just looking for the falcon. The falcon is a notion to describe the entirety of the place. So what he's observing is the place that he lives in and that he um, uh, enjoys. And he's of course, he just also happens to be a poet of great, I mean, just amazing prose. Um, so his way to write what he sees, what he actually sees, not what he wants to see, uh, not any sort of uh, photoshopped image of what's going on, but the actual raw experience of it. So if you read it, it's a furious, brutal book. It's basically about killing. You see, you see these birds kill every day in the most brutal, extraordinary ways and eat the flesh of the animals that they eat. And you, you see then how that all plays out. And the, the, the directness of the description of what he's seeing is so inspiring um, and it might be about birds, but it doesn't matter really. It matter it, what matter it matters to him. But to me, the technique he's using could be used in anything. Um, so that book is every time I feel sort of lost or uh, or blue, I read that book, and it sort of it gives you equanimity and centeredness that someone is this good, like someone is just this ex exquisite in his observational techniques. Um, and I know Werner Herzog also likes it. He likes Virgil as well. You know, he has he has a set of books that he believes are the best observations. And you know, mine is for sure uh, the Peregrine. And it changed my life in a way because it gave me it gave me a, a benchmark, or it gave gave me a bar that was too high. That's way too high to clear for anyone like me. But it it, it sort of showed me what the best is, and uh, the most uh, extreme, you could say, of that. So that is observation. And he just happens to be in Essex and he just happens to be with binoculars out in the, in the wild. And, and he, but he shows you what he sees, not what he believes, not what he judges, but what he actually sees. Um, and then he ends up, of course, describing that there's a relationship between the watcher and the watched that if you, if you think you can watch, you can observe the human world from a distance or from an abstract position where you have no involvement and your humanity and your experience and your background and your childhood and so on is, has no merit in the observational act. That is, of course, bananas that anybody would think that. So, so he says the watcher and the watched are, are together in, in a place and the 
emotions and perspective of the watcher is also data. It's also fact, um, just as much as what he sees. And navigating that is, of course, important and something you can learn. But, but it is also a fact. And he ends up, when he talks about the bird in the end of the book, he, st- he ends up merging with it. He understands it so deeply now that he says, we, when it flies, um, uh, instead, of, instead of I'm here and it's there. So the, the depth of understanding of the place and the, and the birds get to a sophisticated level that I haven't tried and I wish I one day would. Um, but that's certainly something we can shoot for or try to, try to reach for. Well, I think uh, your example of Werner Herzog kind of brings me to a place. Last year at Doc New York, his new movie, movie called The Theater of Thought was shown for the first time. And in the aftermath, I was in the audience. The leader of the Doc New York Festival was interviewing him on stage. And he said, well, you do these remarkable interviews. And one of the gentlemen, a man named Jamie Daves, who's a friend of mine, was a person who was a subject in the movie, and he was also in the audience. He said, Jamie Jay, so, I mean, you, it's amazing that a journalist like you can get to, and Werner stopped him, and he said, I am not a journalist, I'm a poet. I am a poet, I am not a journalist, and he repeated it another time. And I guess what I'm getting at, what it triggered in me is the, there's a book I read years ago called The Lost Heart, excuse me, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation by a man named Jeff Nixa. And the question between head and heart and how you kind of keep them both engaged, I think is very important. And that reductionist way of feeling safe anesthetizes which you might call the curiosity of the heart at times, out of fear. But how do you how do you bring the heart back on stage with the head, given how we are taught from kindergarten through the end of college? I mean, the arts, whether it's poetry or whether it's music or whether it's visual painting, Donatello's sculpture, whatever take you right to the heart. And they are respected, but they are also a very, very small part of the curriculum in the modern world. And I'm, ju- I'm just curious how, how, what is the role of the arts and what is the role of the heart? I guess the, the two questions I'm asking you. Right, I mean, of course, it's a scandal how little we teach our children about the arts. Let's call it the arts, but not in a snobbish way. like. The visual world, the world of visual representation, the world of um, sound, and so on—it's—it's—it's a—it's a catastrophe. How little we do, um, and how, f- but and and it's at seeing the arts as something you do on a Sunday if you're wealthy, is is just ridiculous and unhelpful. But when it comes to bringing in the heart, I think if you do observation of this kind, and you involve yourself with, well aware that you are involving yourself and that you have to arrest your innate need for, judge, for judging things, you will, you will feel something about it and you will engage with the, the, whatever social phenomena you are working on. And there's no way you can't empathize when you do that and get involved in it in a different way. The, easy, the, the, the other way would be distancing yourself from what you're looking at. So imagine you sell food, but you never care about how people eat and their relationship to food. Or imagine you are an economist and you don't really care about the people for whom inflation changes everything. The inflation level changes everything. If it's all an abstract system, you can be cold and um, feel scientific, yet be wrong all the time. You know, it's it almost it's all it's funny how econ- the the economist 
world can't see that they're always wrong. Like systematically always wrong about whatever prediction they have. And that the rest of us are still in on the scan. But, that, but that's because they are so abstracted from everything that they don't do this sort of engaged observation that could really help them innovate and create new ideas and transform the practice. Um, so, so I think the, the heart, if you could, what you call the heart, comes from engaging in the, in the, in the, in the social phenomenon that you're, that you're interested in. So instead of, here's an example, instead of having opinions about homelessness, whether you are on the right or left or whatever you think about it, try to walk the street at night and in a safe way, but try to walk the street at night, figure out what's it like to not know where, if you can sleep, where you can sleep tonight. What's that like? Uh, what, what, what does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is it, what's the d- dynamics of it? How do they see the world? Um, if, if you don't engage like that, you don't feel anything. But if you do, you can learn, you can understand, and you can start doing really good science on it. Um, but, it, but, it but you need to go. And you need, you need yourself to go. You, need, you can't just source it to someone else. You have to do it yourself. And by doing that, we start understanding each other and relating to each other in a way that I think has heart and and and, and breakthrough capacity to it. Um, so I think people should get out of their offices and they should get out of their headquarters and they should get out of their models and go observe and as a daily practice. And if you do it constantly, you become good at it. And if you become good at it, you can use it. So, I th- and I think it's for everyone. It doesn't cost anything necessarily. I mean, it might cost a plane ticket, but it's not, it's not an expensive endeavor in that sense. It's, it's just like exercise. You have to go to the gym. Um, it's like that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Well, you bring, again, uh, I use Buffalo Springfield. Some of those guys joined a thing called Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And I guess the, the closing song or lyric that I would cite today is a song called Teach Your Children. It's teach your children well, their parents' hell will slowly go by. But then it comes back and it said, and you of tender years can't know the fears that your elders grew by. Help them with your youth. They seek the truth before they do die. Teach your children what, teach your parents well. Their children's hell will slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one that, the ones they pick, the one you'll know by. I see so much now. I have 11 and 14 year old daughters, one of whom I'm taking to comedy camp right after we record. And I see the Scola Socorentis of Pope Francis, the scholarly encounters group. I feel like we, it, it's time to learn again from the young people. Doris Sumner at Harvard is teaching the arts in relation to racial animosity, to climate change. Thomas Berry's written beautiful books. I think there are more people to go along with J.A. Baker that you and I and others can, can come together but asking young people, reading about Rilke or Rumi or any of these others, there, there is a heart education. And I think the young people will carry it up to us and, and they will teach their parents well. That's a good hope. <laughs> well, We'll have to make some more chapters and uh, get together with our young scholars. But thank you for taking the time today. And most importantly, thank you for writing this beautiful book. Thank you so much. Talk again soon. Bye-bye for now. Bye. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. 
And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing